Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. James 1. We'll be there in just a moment. How's everybody doing? Great job up here, you guys. Fantastic. Nearing the end of summer, everyone's worn out from too many hot dogs and hamburgers or whatever you've been eating. Back on a healthy diet, feeling better on a Sunday morning. No, not buying that yet, right? Hey, be encouraged. Winter will be here soon and everybody will be happier, right? See, we're talking about trials today, so I just thought, thought I'd bring that one, bring that one up. Before we get fully into the text, I think it would be helpful, at least I hope it will be helpful, to take a minute or two and meet the James gang, the James gang. I had initially titled the uh, sermon, Meet the Jameses, and I had some help on the grammar, and then I got turned around by someone else and said, hey, you ought to name it Meet the James gang. Now, that does sound good. I like that. Three men in the New Testament that we're introduced to by the name of James. Two of them are more prominent and one we know very little about. The one we know the least about is James, the son of Alphaeus, who uh, was called by Jesus to be one of the 12 disciples. And, and that's really all we know about him. But I just want to say that uh, just because we don't know much about him, doesn't mean that we should have, you know, less appreciation for him, right? We live in a culture that, you know, the more you know about somebody, you know, the bigger and better it is. Not necessarily, right? We should remember that uh, James, the son of Alphaeus, along with the other disciples, met the risen Lord. He was called to be a disciple, became an apostle, given the authority by God and Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit to broadcast the news of God's salvation. He was there on, in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. And in whatever way he served God beyond that, we should praise the Lord for that. Even though we may not know the specific details of it. Just like for many of us, people will not know how we served and loved the Lord throughout our lives. But we should remember that the least among us uh, can be still the greatest. And we give God praise uh, for James, the son of Alphaeus. The second James is better known. He's the brother of John. John, the writer of the gospel and the three letters and the revelation of Jesus. And his name, James, also uh, a son of Zebedee. A son of Zebedee. We have a Zebedee somewhere. No sons yet, but that's okay. Seems destined, destined that you will name your sons if God gives you sons, James and John. Seems the right, the right thing to do. Um, but he was a fisherman, worked in the family fishing business. It's kind of somewhat, you know, ordinary work, which God honors, right? Ordinary work, God honors. He was uh, known as a son of thunder which meant that he had a lot of sin to overcome in his life in order to be used by God. Some of that kind of sin we'll talk about in our sermon today. 
But here's what we really know a lot about James. One, he's not the author of the book we're reading, by the way. Well, let's make that clear. He's not the author of the book we're studying. But instead, he is the apostle who was martyred when the persecution broke out. His head was forcibly removed as the persecution was brought against the church. The persecution that James, who authored the book, this third James we're going to talk about, is writing about. Right? And that is this James, the half-brother of Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary by natural means, is the author of the book that bears his name. And we should remember that this James was not originally a disciple of Jesus, which um, gives us hope for people that we know who maybe have been in church or know Christians but are yet to be Christians. Don't give up hope on them. They can still become Christians, you know. They can still be followers of Jesus, just as James, the half-brother of Jesus, walked with Jesus, saw Jesus for three decades, but didn't follow him until after he was met by the risen Lord. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that when Jesus made all of these appearances, Paul said that he also met with James. And after that point, James became a devoted follower of his older brother, Jesus, and wrote this book for us, as well as pastored the church in Jerusalem and was part of the Jerusalem Council. But, you know, one of the things that you want to keep in mind about James, the author of this book, is that when he met Jesus and began to follow Jesus, he had to leave behind his old life. In other words, he too had to personally be dispersed. The, the, the Kind of the... The root of this book, the tension in this book, is about dispersion. In the case of the Christians in Jerusalem, they were scattered to regions around. They lost their jobs or lost their homes, were displaced. But there's a kind of displacement, as we said last week, that doesn't necessarily require you to move, and that displacement can be when things around you change. And for James... Everything changed when he met the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the glorified Lord Jesus Christ, uh, not God in the flesh cloaked that he played with and went to synagogue with and grew up with, but now the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And it's probably one of the most important questions to ask to know if you have authentic faith or not. What has changed in your life as a result of encountering the risen, glorified, ascended, returning Lord Jesus Christ. The one who James tells us is the judge who is standing at the door. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on us. For the judge is standing at the door. Perhaps this is why... James pleads with the church to act with wisdom as it endures the various trials that come with being dispersed. And this, of course, has great bearing on the church at present. This church, our St. James congregation, churches around us in this region, and particularly in our nation. When James wrote, dispersion, persecution, trial, hardship. And faith 
is to become more mature through trial. But it's also true that faith can be diminished when we don't respond to trials in the way we should. And according to James and what I'm going to read here in just a moment, as faith is diminished and we give in to temptation to sin, we get on that pathway to death, ineffectiveness. Worthlessness, as our Christian experience might appear. I mean, that's what we we're reading out of the Sermon on the Mount. And I wonder if I, if we, would consider taking sin as serious as Jesus said we should take sin. In that little section that Trisha read so well for us this morning. In verse number 12, the blessing is announced for a, a man who perseveres under trial, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. But then James jumps to the next subject. It's an odd jump. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. To respond wrongly to the trials by giving in to temptation is to get on a path that leads to death. Lord, have mercy. It is in these verses, then, that James provides for the church a basic understanding of how sin works. How sin works within us, and what is the result when sin runs its course. Now, the shift is important from verse 12 to verse 13. And in the authorized version, in the King James Version, the word temptation or tempted is used in both verse 12 and, and verse 13. And... and that's unfortunate because really in verse number 12, the word better rendered is trial, which relates back to verse number two, consider it all uh, joy, brother, when you encounter various kinds of trials. But then when James moves into the category of temptation, he wants you to know that this temptation comes as a kind of a response to trials. And so I think it's better to keep those two words separated. Trials that the church was facing due to the dispersion. Temptation that comes within us as a response to the trials that we are facing. In his commentary, Dr. Motir gives this helpful insight. Every trial is also a temptation. Now just think about this for a moment. In a time when Christians in America are being dispersed, not physically, but culturally, socially, if we will, existentially, we, we feel it, the temptation is to respond from what is within us, not the Holy Spirit always filling us, but from what James outlines here, 
when we're tempted and carried away and enticed by our lust. And so James brings this to bear into the life of the church. And again, it's very important to note that he is writing to Christians under duress. He confronts them. He doesn't coddle them. And he doesn't attack those out there who are bringing the persecution. He takes his his laser beam and he directs it right into the hearts of the people within the church. And so like the James gang, James the son of Alphaeus or Zebedee or James the half-brother of Jesus, they had to respond to the trials they faced by overcoming temptation to act sinfully about those trials. And we do as well. And so the first thing we come to in verse number 13 is that temptation to sin is not from God. James makes this clear. We are not being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. I have great confidence that my dad is in heaven today because of a change in his life later. But for most of his life, my dad believed that if God didn't want him to sin, he wouldn't have allowed sin to come into the world. He basically gave himself you know, a free pass by blaming it on God. And that's how a lot of people kind of look at the matter of temptation. Well, if God didn't do X, then I wouldn't respond this way. If God wouldn't have allowed this to happen in my life, then I would have you know, been okay. So thanks, God. But James James redirects the church into the actual place where temptation to sin is found. And it's not found with God. But instead, temptation to sin comes from within us. And this is how concerned James is that the church thinks and acts within the wisdom that is from above. He wants us to understand that God's wisdom in our lives then allows us to see this pathway to death. And this pathway to death is like dominoes that fall. You ever line up dominoes on a table and just hit the first one and down they go? And this is what James does for us. He says, God is not the one who brings the temptation. He doesn't tempt anyone, but each one is tempted. Verse 14, domino one, when he's carried away. Domino two, when he's enticed by his own lust. Listen to them fall. Watch them fall. When lust has conceived, what does it give birth to? Sin. When sin is accomplished, what does it bring forth? Death. So instead of God tempting people to sin, James tells us that the root of temptation is within us. And wow, the church really needs to, to re- like rethink this because we're just inundated with the forces of media that want us to think that the problem is with them out there and not the enemy the enemy within and james is telling the people under duress being dispersed facing real trials in their life that their sinful responses can't be blamed on Herod or on Caesar or on the government because it's within them. It's within them. The sinful nature passed down from our father Adam is what begins to carry us away. And as we are carried away, we are enticed 
by our lust. And so two concepts need to be understood. The first is, what does it mean to be carried away and enticed? This idea of carrying away has, has this, uh, this thing of force behind it. And when you put the phrase carried away with the word enticed, you get the fuller meaning that you're just drawn into something that is going to lead you into death. Dave knows that Dave Earsey knows this. I can't kiss, catch fish worth anything. Like we try, I just can't, won't happen, fine. But for all of you who can catch fish, you know that you throw the line out and you the the, the thing sinks down and you got the thing on it that wiggles around. And what does that do? That that causes the fish to go like, oh, oh, that looks good. Right? And then he sinks his, his uh, slimy little mouth into it. And you feel the tug on your line. And he's now dead. Assuming you get him up into the boat and in the net. He doesn't flop back out. That's how temptation works. Lord, have mercy on us. Because from within, we are so easily enticed. Pulled by the force of what attracts us and what we want to, to respond to and how we want to respond. Which is where the second word lust comes into. And lust can be a sexual component. But it doesn't have to be sexual. It just simply means wrong desires, inordinate desires. And in, and in many ways, how the church is responding to the sinful brokenness of our culture is not through righteous action, righteous anger, but through fleshly responses, through fleshly anger, through fleshly solutions. We make good on our inordinate desire to lash out or strike out at those who are making our lives uncomfortable, where we are feeling displaced. And we like to join the crowd and get on whatever the outlet might be and say, yeah, it's their fault. And James goes, well, wait a second. It's not Herod's problem. It's not Caesar's problem. It's your problem. It's what's in you. To be caught and lured by lust. You know, reading through the book of James really helps you kind of get this together. And that's why I encourage you, please, every week, read the five chapters of James. It is so very important. And James, like the other biblical authors, is really good at making lists. And I'm just going to read a, a kind of a compilation of what lust produces. This is just like a flyover very quickly. In chapter 1, if you think yourself to be religious but you don't bridle your tongue you deceive your own heart your religion is worthless now that's strong language your expression and belief to god has no value if your tongue betrays what your heart says it believes he goes on about the tongue it's a fire the very world of unrighteousness the tongue is set among our bodies our, our bodies parts as that which defiles the whole body it sets on fire the course of our life, set on fire by hell. So that if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't be arrogant and lie against the truth. 
How many have started a forest fire with your words? Or now, you know, through the means of a computer, it's destroyed things. In chapter 4, you lust and do not have, you commit murder. You're envious, you cannot obtain, you fight, you quarrel. You boast in all your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. I mean, this is the preacher James just railing against sin. Why? Because Jesus himself said sin is lethal. It can't be toyed with. And it has to be understood that regardless of the trials we may face, the temptation to sin comes within us. And this is the point that James makes. The enemy without isn't lethal. The enemy within is the one who will kill you. So if you're being dragged away and enticed by wrong desires, I want you to know that God can and will help you to overcome those things. Praise God, we're not left to our own devices. I mean, this isn't a hopeless message. We actually have the power of the risen Christ to deliver us from being enticed and dragged away and leading uh, ourselves to death. Jesus can change that within us. But faith, faith must be the response. And and this is a critical point. Because we we look at the displacement, we, we look at the things out there, and we're so deeply troubled by it, and we lose our focus that Jesus is still king over everything. And that our faith must be directed up to him. And instead, we get flat out here, and we get all worried and concerned, and then that that lure just draws us away into all kinds of fleshly action. Faith is not without intellect, but primarily not an intellectual response. Faith flows from the fullness of God's love. It flows out of the fullness of God's joy through his spirit that fills us, that flows out of the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I've thought about this sermon all week, and I've been so thankful to call our attention to these things, and really based on what Mike preached a few weeks ago in the, in the, in the um, let me slow down, um, in the introductory sermon from chapter 5, and just look at it again, Remember the point Mike Mike made. My brethren, in verse 19, if any among you, what? Strays from the truth. And I wonder how many, even in a congregation like ours, are straying from the truth due to the temptation to respond to the trials wrongly. And what is our, our response? What is our responsibility that we that we turn you back. Because when we turn you back, we turn a sinner from the error of his ways. You get to save one's soul from what? Death and cover a multitude of sins. I mean, James just is so cohesive in his presentation. The trials out there are not what is causing you to get on a pathway to death. It is the enemy within that lures you away to respond wrongly to the trials and when you begin sinning against God and against others with your tongue or however you do it then our responsibility as a church is to bring you back to 
to bring you back then into obedience so that we save your soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. I mean, what a privilege the church has to do gospel work in, in this regard. This is the church in real life. Not theoretical Christianity, but real life Christianity is about saving souls from death, even souls within congregational life. And so James points us then to two overarching truths that really lead us to Christian hope. And the first one we've talked a lot about, and that is wisdom, back in verse number 5, when he says, if you lack wisdom, when you encounter these trials, then ask of God who gives generously. He gives generously. If we ask. But, but man, if you're just caught up in the news cycle, or people are sending you, you know, Facebook or social media posts, you go, oh, what about this and what about this? And you're just like feeling that anger, rage within you, and you, it's, there you go, and you don't stop. You don't say to yourself, how would God's wisdom want me to read this? How does God's wisdom want me to read the culture we're currently in? How does God's wisdom want me to understand this hamlet, the villages, where you work, whatever you do? And you say, well, will God give it? Yeah, he'll give it generously. A super overflow of abundance. And he won't you know, slap you upside the head and say, well, don't ask. You should know this already. No. He says, I'm just going to pour it out on you so that you can read the trials rightly, which then allows you to respond to those trials rightly so that your religion isn't worthless and of no, no use. My sense is that many Christians today who feel the displacement that comes with these social changes are being overcome with sinful desires and that anger within Christianity is one of the major problems. Why are we so angry? Because when you examine what James says comes with God's wisdom, anger is not one of those things. It's pure, it's peaceful, it's easy to be entreated, it's full of good works, and it leads to peace among those who make peace. I mean, I would hope that we as a church look at this pathway to death that James lays out and ask ourselves, are we on it? Are we on that pathway? Is our response to the trials we face going to lead us to death, or are we going to seek God's wisdom? And as we seek God's wisdom, the second key is to seek God's purposes so then we flourish in times of great trial. And I would encourage you to read the book of Acts from, just read the whole book of Acts, and you'll see how the gospel flourishes among uh, trials, among trials. But if you look at verse number 18 here in James, you get clearly stated what is God's purpose for us. It is in the exercise of his will that he brought us forth by the word of truth. Here's the purpose, so that we would be a kind of first fruit among 
his creatures. You see, when, when we focus too much on that which was never to be permanent, namely our nation, culture, society, however you want to say it, that has no permanence, but it impacts us negatively. We have to learn to look at that which has complete permanence. So writes uh, Motier in his commentary. And when we look at that which has complete permanence, then we can rejoice because attached to that as we read is the crown of life which the Lord promises to give to them who love him and, and wait for his appearing. And you know, each of the Jameses presented in the New Testament had to grapple with sin in their own lives just as we have to do as well. It wasn't enough for those men simply to hear the words of Jesus. They had to receive the words of Jesus. And as they received the words of Jesus, they had to overcome sin so that they proved to be a kind of first fruit of his creation. And the same is required of us. We're not exempt from that. And one of the best ways then to love one another is to overcome the besetting sins in your life for the sake of congregational life, so that we are a congregation that is holy, that loves God, loves one another, and loves the people out there that are causing us grief. And that would lay into us for claiming that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. A mature faith is a faith that overcomes desires to act out sinfully. A mature faith is a faith that instead acts righteously through the power of God, through his spirit, as his love is shed abroad in our hearts. If your life this morning is compromised by sin, whatever sin that might be, I plead with you to confess your sins. To seek God's wisdom. To allow faith to once again engage the hope and promises of God to us in Jesus Christ. I love to think about confession like this. God is not condemning weak people who are struggling. But instead God is inviting us to go deeper into his love. Confession is not about, you know, how bad I am but instead how good God is to receive us to himself. Each of the men named James faced the same choices you face right now. The same grace that was poured out on them is poured out on us. We must learn like them to count our trials as joy so that the blessed life of a mature faith lived with wisdom helps us to overcome the disordered attachments that we have and to live unto God in holiness and righteousness. As we come to this table, let's come seeking to find how good God is to sinners in need of grace. Let me pray. Father, we do live in perilous times, as Paul reminded us, about how we respond to these times, oh God, has a lot to say about the maturity of our faith. And I just would pray that right now, your word might sit on us, seep down through the 
cracks and crevices and drench us with love and mercy and grace. We'll remain quiet for a few moments and prepare our hearts to join together at the table. The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G.